Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This edition is in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Today, my guest is Richard Brown, Board of Trustee, Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Connecticut. His book, Self-Evident Truths, Contesting Equal Rights from the Revolution to the Civil War, published by Yale University Press, is the topic of this show. Brown offers a depth examination of the idea enshrined in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, and how it worked out practically in the young republic based on a vision of a new democratic order in which superior merit would mark the differences among citizens. From the beginning, the nation struggled with the ideal and the reality of social inequality based on religion, nationality, ethnicity, race, gender, age, and social class. Americans debated the vision of equality as reserved before God alone, equality before the law, and equality of opportunity. Brown demonstrates how these debates played out in criminal trials and punishment, divorce cases, and among immigrants and African Americans. Seeking to distinguish themselves from the inherited class structure of England, Americans retained a feature that would make equality difficult to realize, inherited private property and patriarchal coverture. Brown gives us a thorough understanding of the myth of a classless society that held sway since the founding of the nation. Here is my conversation with Richard D. Brown. Now let me introduce you to the author, Richard Brown. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Before we get into this very interesting book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Self-Evident Truths. Well, I... uh... Graduated Oberlin College in 1961, went directly to Harvard University, where I completed a doctoral degree under the supervision of Professor Bernard Balin in 1966. I then went back to Oberlin, where I taught until 1970. Uh, I came to the University of Connecticut in 1971 and remained at the University of Connecticut until my retirement in 2009. My interests have always focused on early American history. I started out with the American Revolution. I moved into uh, more broadly the 18th and the 19th centuries. I've done books on modernization in early America, on uh, the diffusion of information in early America, on the idea of an informed citizenry, in early America. And then uh, in the late 90s, I became very interested in microhistory. I remain very interested in microhistory. That is the close study of some particular event and plumbing it very thoroughly so as to appreciate fully its context and the participants. Believing and, and one does this in the belief that knowing a small subject very well can enable you to understand aspects of social, intellectual, cultural behavior uh, more deeply than you can when you are doing a kind of flyover uh, at a higher level of generalization. So anyway, I, that's really what brought me to this self-evident truths book. I did a with, uh, in collaboration with my wife, Irene Q. Brown, we did a book called The Hanging of Ephraim Wheeler, A Story of Rape, Incest, and Justice in Early America. And it's a close examination of uh, Ephraim Wheeler and his family. They are people who lived in Western Massachusetts in the 1790s, early 1800s. Ephraim Wheeler raped his daughter uh, she testified, she charged him, testified against him. Uh, he was tried, convicted, and executed. The only case 
uh, known in American history where a father was executed for the rape of his daughter. And this was a case that was essentially unknown. And <clears throat> my wife and I probed it thoroughly. And through it, I think we've learned a great deal about uh, how various social classes interacted with each other and with the justice system, uh, how uh, the criminal codes uh, affected uh, the ways that uh, people lived. Uh, and we got a real kind of insight into the life of very ordinary people. Uh, and that was what also, and, and in the process, I should say, in order to contextualize Ephraim Wheeler's case, we had to look closely at a whole raft of other criminal cases, and particularly capital cases, that is where capital punishment was involved, broadly in New England and beyond New England. And this gave me a real feeling for how one could understand uh, at a granular level uh, social life in early America. And so, uh, in writing Self-Evident Truths, what I wanted to do was look at a sort of a high macro level at the idea of equal rights, but then also examine very particular criminal cases to see the extent to which equal rights were actually being accorded to people from different uh, kinds of social circumstances uh, in the criminal system. And uh, no. that's, that's what this, this book is a blend of the two. Now, let me ask you, a, let me interrupt you here. For, okay, well, let me ask you a question about uh, the book, Self-Evident Truths, and about all men are created equal. Uh, that was in the Decla Declaration of Independence, and you do a study which is almost like a micro study of a, of a phrase and how it worked its way out, you know, and how people lived and what pe how people understood America. So what was the intention at the time of the Declaration of Independence of the phrase, all men are created equal? And why was that phrase so radical in 1776? Uh, let me begin with the second part of the question first and, and then to the more difficult uh, first part of your question. Uh, 18th century people in the Western world <clears throat> lived in a, an environment of social and political hierarchy. And uh, the idea that uh, monarchy was a natural form of government, that some people were high, some people were low, uh, that everyone was related to everyone else in some hierarchical relationship from the family where fathers were the heads uh, to the kingdom where the, the monarch was the head. And so uh, as enlightenment ideology emerged in the late 17th and 18th century, uh, introducing the idea that before, well, I should say deep in Christian tradition is the idea that all people are equal before God, uh, but that they should be equal before the state uh, was a new idea in the 17th and 18th centuries. And the Americans uh, made that proclamation uh, at a time when, at least in what would be the United States, among elites anyway, there was a widespread acceptance of this idea. Now you ask me, what did they mean by it? In the first in instance, uh, by people being equal, they did not mean that people are equal in ability, that they are, they can run equally fast, that they're equally good looking, that they're equally intelligent, uh, and those kinds of things. But not only before God, but also before the state, before the law, they are equal and should be treated equally. And this, this of course, is enormously ironic in that these words were 
articulated by Thomas Jefferson, who was a very wealthy slave owner at the time that he employed this language. And he obviously knew that he lived in a world of inequality. Uh, and there was a significant discussion over this question in the Virginia uh, Convention of June of 1776, where George Mason used this very same language that all men are created equal. Uh, and the, the issue was raised as to what would be the implications of that for slavery. And one of the members of the Virginia Convention, uh, a lawyer, said, well, we could treat it as being equal if they are in society. But people who are not in society, they, of course, would not be equal before the law. And so slaves were not in society. Uh, other people were in society. Uh, and what I would have to say is that in 1776, as in later decades, there was no single agreement as to what all men are created equal meant or what equal treatment meant. Uh, if if you think, for example, all are equal before the law, well, obviously children are not equal before the law, and certainly women are not equal before the law. Uh, and all people are not equal before the law, depending on what sort of property they possess. So, as I understand it, and as I believe they intended it, it's a kind of an aspirational statement of an ideal rather than a statement of, this is what we have right now. So let me ask you about that. Uh, I think you make this point later in the book, uh, the distinction between uh, a political statement, which you would call aspirational, and a government governing document. So the, Declar the Declaration of Independence was not a governing document. It was a political, as I understand it, a political document. Very much a political document. It's... I would even call it a propaganda document. Uh, I think it's uh, obviously one of the audiences is uh, the international world, that is the United States is declaring independence. On the other hand, the attack on monarchy in it would not be appealing to most European nations, certainly not to France and the United States was actively seeking alliance with France at the time. Uh, and so what I believe, and I'm not alone in this, uh, I would rely heavily here on the work of uh, Pauline Mayer, who wrote an outstanding book called American Scripture about the Declaration of Independence, that this was intended for American audiences, that it was intended to mobilize people behind the cause of independence. Uh, and so... Uh, Many of the parts of the Declaration, particularly the 27 grievances against the king, have no particular meaning at all uh, to a European audience, and uh, they're meaningful only to various American constituencies. Now, this is uh, connected to the whole notion of natural rights. And what were those rights uh, considered the natural rights of men? And how were these rights that Americans were thinking about different from the rights of Englishmen? That's an interesting question. I think they start out by believing that the natural rights of Americans and the natural rights of Englishmen are the same. Uh, and indeed, in the movement up to 1776, what the Americans are seeking is to be treated equally with Britons in Britain. Uh, and it is the unwillingness of the Crown and the Parliament to accord to American colonists precisely the same rights that were possessed by uh, their British counterparts that leads the Americans to uh, rise in revolt and revolution. In time, however, <clears throat> the equal rights that they came to embody in their uh, various state constitutions and state declarations of rights included uh, certainly the right to freedom of religion. 
the right to uh, assemble and petition the government, uh, free speech, uh, the right to self-government, essentially, uh, with freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Uh, these are, are the key rights. And then, you know, they also assert rights not to be subject to uh, non-judicial search and seizure and, and uh, rights of habeas corpus. But some of these are rights that are uh, built into uh, longstanding English practice as well. But I would say particularly uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Freedom of speech is also something that Englishmen are asserting as well. Freedom of religion is not something that's being asserted. Now, right away, early in your book, you begin to talk about how um, the writing property uh, was uh, was early on one of the big impediments to ever really coming to terms with what all men are created equal because of the of the property rights. So, and you and you emphasize this, I think. Uh, in your book, that this is the sort of the main barrier to equality, and why was property so hallowed? Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons for it. I mean, the first and most powerful reason, I think, is that it's historical. Uh, that is, uh, political rights had always, that is, time out of mind, been connected with the possession of property, and one reason for that is that the state must not take property without some form of consent. Uh, and so the people who really have a stake in the political system are those who own property. If you don't own property, the state can't take property away from you. But if you own property, it must be protected from the state as well as from other people. Uh, and so voting rights, in Britain, certainly, uh, and in colonial America, were in general tied to the possession of property. Uh, it was believed that people who owned property had a stake in society, had a stake in political order, uh, and that people without property were essentially irresponsible and might take property away from those who possessed it. Now, this, this is a good enough idea until you move over into uh, a system of popular election. And in the effort to uh, appeal to potential constituents, uh, legislatures up and down uh, the United States drop their property requirements. Virtually every state, Pennsylvania drops the property requirement during the revolution. Vermont also has no property requirement during the revolution. But apart from those two states, and Vermont is sort of at the tail end of the revolution. Uh, apart from Pennsylvania, none of the original 13 colonies uh, is ready to give up property rights right at the outset. Uh, but over succeeding decades, uh, all of them give up property rights as a condition for full political participation. Uh, and that's, that's really critical. Uh, that said, uh, as I make clear in the chapter on social class and property, in reality, uh, people who have more property have advantages that people who have less property or no property do not. And so uh, I would argue that throughout American history, up to and including today, uh, people are not equal before the law to a significant extent. I mean, there are other factors, race, gender, uh, national status but also property. Uh, that is, people with property uh, have opportunities before the state that people without property 
lack. And the most obvious example of this is posting bail. If you have property, you can post bail. If you don't have property, uh, you have to spend time in jail. Now, this also has to do with uh, property. You could hand uh, your property down to your heirs, which means your heirs uh, are born with property. Not virtually, actually. Uh, and that- yeah, actually with, with property. And then other other citizens who are born into parents who have no property, you just keeps on and going. That, that, this is in my last uh, chapter. It's a discussion... There's a discussion of a kind of fundamental conflict in American values. On the one hand, uh, Americans value individual rights uh, very, very powerfully and believe that everyone should enjoy rights equally. But one of those individual rights is the right to property and not merely the right to own property, but the right to pass property to one's heirs. And these two beliefs, which are in a certain way united, uh, have a contradictory element because if uh, one person is the son of a billionaire or the daughter of a billionaire and another person is the daughter or son of someone of no means or middling means, uh, it's hard to say that they are in an equal position before the law. Nominally, they're certainly in an equal position before the law. But when you can hire high-priced talent to defend you in a criminal suit or in a civil suit, uh, you're obviously uh, enormously advantaged relative to the person who has to rely on a court-assigned attorney. Okay, I want to go on to uh, some other things in the book that are really interesting. We can't cover everything, but... I'm going to one that I'm very interested in is which is in your second chapter where you talk about religion. The religion had be, was a a huge problem uh and the, there was resistance of course to state sponsored religion but it seemed like they couldn't uh, some of these uh, colonies and then later the states couldn't get away from it because there was always uh people wanting to exclude other people for belief systems. So can you talk about, uh, and all the states seem to be different, like we talk about Virginia and Pennsylvania, they all had different approaches to religion. Can you talk about the conflict between the national vision about what, how re- the place of religion in the society was to be, and then individual the reality on the ground in individual states? Sure. Uh, this is one of the areas where, people in our own time uh, don't have a very fully informed sense of what the history of religious freedom is in the United States. And so the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, uh, is, is taken to mean that there should be an absolute wall of separation between church and state. And that wall of separation language is uh, from Thomas Jefferson. And he and Madison uh, very much advocated that kind of uh, wall of separation. And in Virginia, a wall of separation was uh, created in the 1780s. But it was highly contested at the time. And the reason that so many believed it was necessary to have state-sponsored, state-supported religion was that they believed, not only that many people believed the religion, which is certainly true, but more than that, they believed that in order for society to remain coherent, law-abiding, for morality uh, to succeed in a society rather than collapse in a kind of irreligious chaos, state-sponsored religion was desirable. And so, uh, with the exception of Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, uh, every state provided some form of support for religion. Now, that was difficult because everywhere there was religious diversity. It was not the kind of religious diversity today, of today, where you have many different kinds of Protestants, you have Catholics, you have uh, Eastern Orthodox, you have Muslim, you have 
various kinds of Jews, multiple divisions really among all of these uh, Buddhists, uh, Hindus, you know, many religions in the United States today. They were mostly Protestants, but they were divided uh, as Protestants, and they had not uh, come to an agreement really as to which variety of Protestantism should be dominant. So, for example, in uh, New York and Virginia, uh, Church of England, uh, Anglicanism was the preferred religion. In New England, uh, Congregationalism was the preferred religion. Uh, everywhere there were Baptists, increasingly there were Methodists. There are also some Catholics. There are also some Jews. And what finally uh, came to be worked out was that the best position was for the state to step aside and let uh, allow equal opportunity for each religion. And people could uh, make their own decisions, support the church of their choice. Uh, but this was uh, this was fought over quite bitterly in in a number of places. The last states to give up religious establishment were in New England, uh, where uh, there was even as late as the 1830s uh, the prosecution of uh, a man for blasphemy uh, for uh, speaking against, as the authorities uh, thought, speaking against uh, Jesus. So. I guess what I'd say in conclusion on this is that in order to secure a kind of intergroup peace and a sense of fairness, uh, they decided finally at the state level to take the state out of the business of religion. Uh, and there were some slight remnants that survived through the 19th century, uh, such as that uh, office holders should be Christian. Uh, in some places, though not in other places. And the, the extent to which they enforced their strictures would also vary pretty widely. Okay, the, the, other, the other issue that I saw here that I want to talk about because it's so relevant to what's going on today is the issue of how the new republic was going to deal with immigration. And it's really interesting because people today really have no idea of what what it was like in those early years. And one thing that we talk about, you talk about is the fact that uh, what it meant to be an American was still in, in contested and in, informing because the idea of nationalities uh, in nation states were forming. So it was, you know, most, how did, how did most people who lived in the United States that early period identify themselves? What did it mean to be an American? And, how did how did newcomers get into the country? That that issue is is a profound one. What is an American? Uh, and there were writings on it and efforts uh, by various people, some of European origin, some of uh, United States origin, to try to figure out exactly what an American was, because of course. Uh, as of 1776 or 1787, no adult had been born an American. Uh, everybody had been born uh, either as one variety or another of British, English, Scots, Welsh, Irish, uh, or they were German or Dutch or Swedish or something else. And uh, so the idea of an American is rather uh, slow to fully take place. Now, what I focused on particularly was the Naturalization Act of 1790, which is enacted in the first uh, United States Congress under the Constitution, and on the political debates between Federalists and Jeffersonians in the 90s and into the early 19th century. And that first part, the Naturalization Act, stipulates that any white person can become a citizen of the United States. 
that I think is of fundamental importance that people need to recognize that initially the founders of the United States saw the United States as being a white nation and welcoming everyone from Europe uh, into the United States. Of course, they knew that they had a very substantial African-American population, roughly 20% of the whole population was of African or partly African origin. But their naturalization law was stipulated to be white, to be a citizen. Of course, you could come and not seek citizenship. Uh, there were no barriers to entry. Uh, but there was a lot of discussion and debate uh, in the 90s and the early 19th century as to what it took to become a citizen, because there was anxiety about radicals coming in uh, from France. Uh, there was anxiety about uh, the uprising in Haiti and that uh, white Haitians would come to the United States with their African uh, Haitian slaves and that these African Haitian slaves would be, quote, infected, unquote, with rebellious ideas and would sow uh, rebellion uh, among the African-American population in the slave states. So, I mean, generally, uh, there was a sense that citizenship should, was, was something that should not be granted immediately. Uh, they varied back and forth between two years and five years. They settled finally on five years for United States citizenship. Although states could allow people to become citizens uh, within a year, two years. Uh, so you could be a citizen of a state, but not of the United States, uh, which was a kind of an anomalous situation, which wasn't worked out really until late in the 19th century. Now, there was also a debate between uh, birthright citizenship and natural versus naturalization. In other words, there were some advocates who said only if you were born here. Others said, no, uh, you have to go through a naturalization process. What was... Well, the, the naturalization process, actually, there was agreement that uh, non-natives could be naturalized. The debates were over how long it should take before they could become a naturalized citizen. And the, the longest period that was proposed was 14 years, and that was justified, that's a federalist position from the late 1790s, early 1800s. And, and the federalists justified that with the argument that, <clears throat> look, uh, if you're born in the United States, you don't get to become fully a participant until you're an adult. So making someone wait 14 years before they can become a citizen is perfectly reasonable. Uh, there were also issues over how much you should have to pay uh, in order to fulfill your naturalization requirement, uh, how much the papers would cost, what sort of barriers or financial barriers would be placed in the way of uh, becoming uh, a citizen. And again, uh, federalists tended to argue that uh, the payment should be relatively high because it's a valuable privilege. Uh, Jeffersonians argued that it should be de minimis, you know, like 50 cents. Uh, a federalist might argue $20. Okay, now let me ask you about the question about this, uh, the attitudes that people were ha had towards uh, immigrants, and we're talking here, uh, you know, European immigrants, and, and how they sort of foreshadow or sort of be kind of, it's the beginning of also racial ideas, racist ideas. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> actually, uh, I expected in, when I first went into this uh, that I would find considerable uh, prejudice against uh, Catholics in general, whether Irish or French or Portuguese or Spanish uh, or Italian, that one would find significant prejudice against them. And the one prejudice that seems to be pretty uh, 
evident is a kind of prejudice toward Irish as being wild, uh, unruly, uh, and Catholic. And, and Catholic is, is never regarded as a, a good thing because Catholics are supposedly subordinate to the Pope in Rome and they won't be loyal United States citizens, they will follow the dictates of Rome. So that's more or less what I expected. What I found, however, was that at least in the criminal cases, American courts were pretty even-handed and they uh, would convict or acquit someone uh, independently of what their uh, ethnic origin was or their religious uh, preference. So one doesn't really have a strong ethnic prejudice emerging really until the 1830s and 1840s when the pace of Irish immigration uh, really picks up and when issues of uh, pauperism and uh, public support <clears throat> and crime uh, in urban areas becomes a lively uh, question. But I mean, there's one sort of remarkable case that I came across, <clears throat> and I'm not the only person who saw the case of Halligan and Daly, which is in Massachusetts in 1806. <clears throat> uh, these are two recent Irish immigrants, and there's a lot of prejudice against them. And remember, Massachusetts is a very vigorously Protestant uh, colony and in the interior where they were said to have committed their crime and where I believe they did commit their crime, which was robbery, highway robbery and murder, uh, there was intense uh, prejudice against them. And there's uh, clergymen who were prepared to <clears throat> preach against immigrants in general uh, and to, to hold close an idea that uh, we, we native white Americans are law-abiding good people and we are threatened with crime and uh, disorder and costs uh, by these uh, impoverished masses from Europe. I wouldn't say that that's general, however. I, I would characterize that as something that one sees in the interior of Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, Maine, but not I would not call it widespread in the United States. I wouldn't see widespread uh, hostility to immigrants until really the 1840s. And it's in the 1840s that there are some major uh, urban riots in uh, Philadelphia, especially, but not only Philadelphia. Okay. Now there is a, the other issue I wanted to ask you about was in the early Republic period, uh, in terms of immigration, was it sort of an open door sort of thing? You, if you just if you could get on a boat and get over here and get off the boat alive, you were in. Now you may not be a you're not that's, a citizen. That's one of the points that uh, I've recently been heard on, been hearing on talk shows, is that you know much has been made over legal and illegal immigration, and you know my grandparents were legal immigrants and. And they did things the right way. Well, the fact is, before 1921, showing up here was the right way. There were no restrictions on immigration, uh, except, of course, for Chinese. That's introduced in uh, 1881. But, uh, and there are exclusions on Japanese, too, uh, by 1921. But if you're from Europe, uh, it's not until 1921 that there are any restrictions at all. So if you show up, you're fine. Let me let's go on to another issue here that uh, I don't spend a lot of time on this on race and slavery and all that because that's a huge huge issue. But there was one thing you mentioned early on that I thought was very interesting: the idea that that uh, African Americans or slaves, uh, and for that matter, women also had not entered were not had not entered into society. Right. Yeah. That, what is women, that? women and slaves are not property owners. Uh, slaves are, I mean, in fact, uh, according to uh, common practice, 
slaves did own property. It might be, it wouldn't be real estate, but they could own, uh, they owned their clothing, for example. Sometimes uh, they owned uh, other kinds of implements. There are certainly records of slaves who owned uh, watches, for example, and uh, sometimes uh, pieces of silk and, and other uh, items of value. But they don't own real estate. Free blacks own real estate. Uh, and free blacks are, in many instances, uh, accorded political rights. Not always, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but in some jurisdictions, certainly, free blacks who own property uh, are accorded rights. But women, in general, do not own property. Why is that? Well, in the first instance, their daughters, uh, their father owns their property, and when they marry, their husband owns their property. They become femme covert, uh, and any property that they own at marriage immediately becomes the property of their husband. There are a few legal ways around that, but they're pretty limited and very unusual. That uh, is, sometimes <clears throat> uh, property can be conveyed to a woman in such a way that her husband can't touch it, but that's very rare. The standard pattern is that a woman's property becomes her husband's property. Well, if women don't own property, why should they vote? Uh, their husband's vote will serve the interests, uh, their interests. And it's not really until the 1830s that you have a significant articulate movement for women uh, voting. Now, I say as, as a movement, uh, but there are cases where women are voting much earlier. In New Jersey, for example, and this is very exceptional, but very much the case, women were allowed to vote from 1793 until 1807, and they did vote. There weren't very many women who were voting. They were widows who owned property because their husbands had left them. So this linkage between having standing in a community and having property is, is very powerful. So, stand, so the idea of entering in society was, the definition was that you had property in order to have a standing in society. Yes. Is that, okay, so which contradicts, of course, the whole idea that all men are created equal, but it means all men who have property are created equal. That's, that's right. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, they didn't state it that way uh, in 1776. Uh, and I would say that um, that's where you, you run into the aspirational aspect of the statement. So how did, how did the, another, it, involving uh, African Americans, how did the idea of natural liberty, the definition of natural liberty, clash with the idea of social and civic equality? You, how can you have natural liberty and not have, you know, civil, civil rights? Well, I'd say that's, you can't. I mean, my answer would be you can't. But they tried to make that d distinction, right? Well, they, they, I, I think that's one of the uh, contradictions of American polity, uh, of American politics and society. <clears throat> that is... Uh, and one sees this very powerfully in Thomas Jefferson. Toward the end of his life, when he was up in his 70s, he makes a statement. Uh, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. I don't have it in front of me. Where he says words to this effect, that nothing is more certain but that the slaves must be free. And it is also equally certain, he says, that slave, former slaves and white Americans cannot live together. So he's saying, in effect, that uh, they certainly have the right to be free, and they certainly possess, should possess full rights, but not in our society, you know, somewhere else. 
and Jefferson always had uh, some sort of uh, inchoate, vague idea of uh, exporting free blacks. And that's a major theme in uh, American society between 1800 and 1865 is that, uh, well, you might have blacks free, but the best thing, because they can never live, uh, because whites are saying they can never live fully as equal with us and free of conflict, uh, they need to go somewhere else. Uh, and so you have the American Colonization Society, for example, which is the supporter of the Liberia colony. Uh, the English also have a colony in West Africa, Sierra Leone. And in each case, the idea is that you know, free blacks should go over there. They should go back to Africa. Now, the fact that the free blacks, 90% of them were born in, in the territory of the United States, spoke English, had no uh, concrete connection with Africa, uh, was irrelevant to the people who were making the argument that they should, quote, go back Africa, you know, from whence they had never come. It would be a little bit like saying that uh, the Americans who were descended from Germans should go back to Germany, uh, or the Americans descended from English should go back to England or Scotland or wherever. Uh, it's, you know, trying to make it logical was something that uh, I can't do, and I don't think they could do either. Uh, there, there are some sort of pretzel-like arguments that are uh, generated uh, to try to make it seem logical. And this being in society or not in society that you see from Edmund Pendleton in uh, 1776 in Virginia, that's, that's one of these what I would call sophistries. It's, it's a, a kind of false distinction. Well, I was just wondering if that was also uh, the idea that there was a private sphere and there was a public sphere and the slaves and women were in the household and that was considered a private area that was under the male head of the household versus the public arena where commerce is happening and laws are being made. And if that's going into society means you had to be able to go out uh, in the world and do commerce, but you can't if you can't go into contracts. Uh, and you can't do it if you can't vote. That's so, good point. I, I would accept that point. Women, women, and uh, unfree people uh, generally can't make contracts. So you know you have the case of the indentured servant uh, who makes a contract to uh, place herself or himself in an unfree status for a period of years. Uh, now, while they are in that unfree status as an indentured servant, uh, I don't exactly know whether they can uh, make any additional contracts. Uh, certainly, whatever contracts they might be able to make would be limited by uh, the terms of their indenture. But generally, I mean, I think you're, you're, what you're saying is right. That is that... Uh, as they thought about it in common terms, uh, people who are in society uh, are people who are free to wheel and deal, and uh, women and slaves are not free to wheel and deal. Okay, there's another there's another little contradiction, uh, several contradictions in the whole concept of coverture for women. Uh, one is the fact that under criminal law, women were not held with as much responsibility. If they were married women, uh, they there was a difference between how the husband might be treated versus the wife uh, because it was assumed that she didn't have as much freedom. Uh, well, if, if she committed a crime in the presence of her husband, it was presumed that <clears throat> she was under the control of her husband and therefore he was the culpable party, not she. Right, which is interesting. <clears throat> right. The, the other tendency that I found in, in studying uh, penal behavior is that uh, 
as the century moved on away from, let's say, 1780 toward 1900, penalties on women and children were reduced. <clears throat> they were seen as being less culpable, less, it was seen as being brutal to punish them in the way that you would punish a man. Uh, this is not to say there were not death penalties carried out on uh, adult women, uh, but executions of children, for example, while never common, uh, they happened in the 18th century, they happened in the early 19th century, uh, they ceased. Uh, now, as I understand it, I'm not fully informed on this. I believe some juveniles uh, have been executed in the United States in the 20th century. The definition of juvenile is, of course, somewhat uh, variable. That is, in some places it's under 14, some cases it's under 16, in some cases it's under 18. But I know that there have been, I believe in our lifetime, uh, 16 and 17-year-olds that have been executed uh, in the United States. And here I'd also, it would be a mistake not to point out that race has always played a significant part in uh, determining whether or not people will be executed. Uh, more whites have been executed than blacks, but of course, whites are, uh, you know, anywhere three to five to eight times more numerous than uh, blacks. And, and blacks and uh, Native Americans have been uh, executed at substantially higher rates uh, proportional to their population than have whites. Now, there's another question I had about the women and, and coverture is the idea of how this clashed with uh, religious freedom. Because if the woman uh, joined a, an, a, a different a sect, a different religious, or the husband uh, left for some, you know, cult or sect or something, uh, how this kind of messed up the whole idea of coverture because uh, it, divorce was very hard to get. And how do you respect uh, religious freedom for the w wife? Broadly, you know, this, this is something where very little has been written, and, and there's really room for much more research than I was able to do. <clears throat> um, I found a number of cases where husbands were controlling wives and where controlling wives' religion uh, and religious affiliation. And this seems to be a constitutional problem. You know, why should a man control his wife's religious practice. <clears throat> and the cases that were adjudicated in this regard <clears throat> are chiefly uh, Shaker cases <clears throat> from the period of roughly between 1815 and 1835, <clears throat> where husbands entered Shaker communities and forced their wives to join them. <clears throat> and in Shaker communities, husbands Males and females live separately, and children are raised communally. And <clears throat> there are tests over this in Ohio, Kentucky, New York particularly. And in each of these cases, uh, the states ultimately break coverture. Uh, they say, look, if, if a man chooses to go into this kind of a, uh, you're calling it a cult, we can call it a cult, but if a man chooses to uh, enter into the Shaker religion, his wife is not forced to follow him. Uh, <clears throat> his children, who were normally, quote, owned, unquote, by the father, similarly are not forced uh, to follow the father uh, into this. But <clears throat> it's, I mean, the most interesting case uh, I found was one where was not a shaker case, but it was a case where a husband wanted his wife to be uh, a Baptist uh, preacher, and she was very articulate in religion uh, and had the capacity, uh, but she didn't want to. She, and uh, he tried to coerce her, 
uh, ultimately, uh, they got a divorce. And which was very hard to get. <laughs> which was <clears throat> certainly difficult. Uh, generally, divorces were not... Connecticut was one of the states where divorce was more uh, attainable than virtually everywhere else. Everywhere else, it required an act of the legislature. Uh, each individual divorce required an act of the legislature, a private bill. <clears throat> so it was not, uh, not I mean, I, Virginia, there are very good statistics. And, you know, in <clears throat> the state of Virginia, there might be two or three divorces per annum. Okay. Now, um, I want to kind of get ready here to wrap this up. You uh, basically, in unpacking all men are created equal, this idea meant equality before the law. But there was this idea also that men of superior merit and capacity would govern. Okay, not men of birth, not born from aristocracy, but men who were naturally uh, superior in their intelligence or virtue. Uh, yet they retained this idea that you had to have private property, uh, property in order to, to govern. So there was a lot of different uh, contradictions all wrapped up in this thing. So how, I mean, one of the, the, the ultimate argument you're making is, of course, is that the right to hereditary private property was the central barrier of equality for all people because people, you know, got ahead of others. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I'll elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating about the United States is that it has this profound ideology of, Equality and equal rights. At the same time, uh, from the get-go, we've been struggling to be unequal, to to compete with each other, to uh, amass more property, more distinction, and you know we're we're very good at creating inequalities, uh, and we we rank everything. You know, uh, sports teams are ranked, colleges are ranked. We're ranked by income, neighborhood zip code. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, the, the idea, as it has emerged, certainly uh, over the last oh, century, century and a half, maybe two centuries, is that uh, you know, we're equal participants in a race and uh, we can attain, we, we should have equal opportunity uh, to race to the greatest level of distinction that we can achieve. And the problem I see with equal opportunity is that it's a nice idea, but many people enjoy privileges that others do not possess. And I'm not talking here only about, you know, having better vision and greater physical attributes and greater mental attributes and those kinds of things. But also, uh, <clears throat> you know, they go to better schools, they have uh, more money behind them. They are given advantages, uh, you know, at each step of the way. And, and that is uh, substantially influenced by uh, the parents that you're fortunate enough to possess. But you know the idea that uh, in America we can all work hard and we can all attain to greatness. You can be whatever you want to be. Yeah, that's a nice mythology. I, you know... Certainly, working hard is better than not working hard, and you'll certainly go a lot farther uh, if you apply yourself in the best way possible. But I'm impressed by how little uh, attention is given within this mythology to people who have one or another form of disability. And then there's a kind of cascading aspect to that, because... Some people are free to pursue their self-interest uh, and to enjoy many advantages as they pursue their self-interest. Other people have to take care of relatives, and the care for those relatives may absolutely inhibit their ability to achieve on their own. Well, you can argue that's their choice. They could abandon their relatives, but I don't think we would prescribe abandoning relatives who need our assistance. So, yes, there are contradictions. Thank you so much, Richard. 
You have been very generous with your time. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to talk with you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This has been a special edition in collaboration with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 